So welcome everyone to the H. Henry Meter Center for Kelvin Studies, and this time for Dr. Kareen Mogg and Dr. Graham Murdoch to discuss Kareen's new book, Worshiping with the Reformers. I don't know if you can see the title, but it has just now been recently, actually just literally released by InterVarsity Press. My name is Paul Fields, and I'm going to introduce both Dr. Mogg and Dr. Murdoch. Dr. Kareen Mogg has been at Calvin University and Calvin Theological Seminary as a professor of history and director of the Meter Center since 1997. Kareen received her PhD from the University of St. Andrews on the, under the direction of Professor Andrew Predigree. Her first book was Seminary or University? The Genevan Academy and Reformed Higher Education, 1560 to 1620. Since that time, she has authored and contributed to numerous books, written many articles, been a favorite teacher and lecturer to students young and old, and has very ably directed the Meter Center. Dr. Graham Murdoch is Associate Professor in European History at Trinity College, Dublin. Graham received his PhD from the University of Oxford. His main research interests are the cultural history of religion, the history of the European Reformation, and the, the history of France, Hungary, and Transylvania. He most recently co-edited the book, Cultures of Calvinism in Early Modern Europe, published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. So we thank you for being with us today, Graham. The format will be as follows. Kareen will give a brief interview, introduction to her book. Graham will ask questions. And then those of you who may have questions and have placed them in chat, will then have time, hopefully, uh, for Kareen to answer those questions. So welcome to everyone, and we look forward to this discussion. Well, thank you one and all. It is great to see everybody today. I'm so pleased to welcome all of you from far and wide. We have people from North America with us, uh, from across the United States into Canada. We have colleagues from the Netherlands, from Switzerland, from South Korea. Uh, it is wonderful to see everyone. Thank you so much for your interest in this topic. I'd like to start out with a few brief thank yous as we get going. Um, first of all, thank you to the seminary for hosting this session on Zoom. Uh, thank you to Graham Murdoch for joining me in leading this session and to Paul Fields for his introduction. Um, I'd also like to express my thanks to InterVarsity Press, IVP Academic is their imprint that produced the book, including associate editor, Dr. David McNutt. Um, he recruited me for this project. Uh, he shepherded the project and me uh, through the process from concept to finished product. And I am truly grateful. So my plan for the next 15 to 20 minutes is as follows. I'm going to give a quick overview of the book and its contents. And then I'm going to focus on a few key themes that are going to be a launch pad for our discussion on worship in the Reformation era. And as Paul said, Graham Murdoch will then follow up with a number of questions. And then you'll have a chance to ask your questions via the chat function as well. So I'm going to share my screen because I have a little PowerPoint for us so that we can just see a few things together. So just give me a second to get it up. And let's do from the start. All right. Everybody see the PowerPoint? Somebody nod for me and say, yeah, we're good. Okay, good. You can see it. Great. Okay. So um, the volume that I produced, The Worship with the Refor Reformers, is a companion volume to the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series, which is produced by IVP. Um, 
the idea of the companion volumes is that they help the readers of the commentary series deepen their understanding of the 16th century different aspects of the Reformation as they read the commentary on scripture series. The companion volumes, of course, can also be read independently. And I wrote my book specifically with the idea to make it accessible to readers far and wide so that everyone could get insights into what it might have been like to worship in the Reformation era. So my real focus is the practice of worship, right? There are lots of other books you can read on the theology of worship in the Reformation. There's lots you can do for that. But what I really wanted to focus on was what would it have been like to be there, to be someone worshiping in the Reformation period. So I want to show you first the outline of the book, and that's pretty straightforward. I did eight chapters um, covering everything from going to church at the start to the topics you might expect, like worship at church, preaching, praying, the two sacraments for that were the central ones, at least for the Reformation and, and, and sometimes also topics of debate, baptism and communion, uh, the visual arts and music, and then worship outside of church. I also deal with um, marriage, or at least the, the, the ritual of, of marriage and with funerals. Um, those ones appear in the at church chapter so that, that those aren't sort of left out kind of thing. Um, so you will find pretty much every aspect of worship dealt with in these eight chapters in some way or other. Now, obviously it doesn't cover everything because it can't. Um, and the book is not huge. Uh, you know, it's not going to be the, the compendium encyclopedia, but it will cover enough topics and there are further reading suggestions for those who want to go on and find more uh, to look at on these various topics. My main idea throughout was to highlight the way in which worship in the Reformation period was really a hallmark of identity. In other words, when people describe themselves as Reformed or Lutheran, or Catholic or Anabaptist. A lot of the time for a lay person, it did not mean that they had a deep understanding of a particular theological doctrine. They may have done, but most likely they did not. But what was very clear is they became very quickly very attached to their own way of worship, that that became what helped them differentiate themselves from some other group that worshiped differently, right? So that your actual worship practices became that hallmark of identity. And one of the most visible examples of that without any surprise is the Anabaptists. Uh, if you think about the Anabaptists of the 16th century where believer's baptism or adult baptism was their marker of identity. That was what sort of distinguished them from other Christians at the time. It was a marker of identity that they held to so strongly that it could even lead to their arrest and their trial and their death, right? That shows you just how important this particular worship practice was, right? Um, and it wasn't just the believer's baptism that distinguished the Anabaptists. They also developed certain pretty unique worship practices that distinguished them from everyone else around them. For instance, um, their reading of the Gospels and the account of the Last Supper meant that when they celebrated the sacrament of the Lord's Supper of communion, they usually, for a number of them, integrated within their worship service the practice of foot washing, right? That's a very unique characteristic 
of Anabaptist communion services, this practice of foot washing. So they're, they're sort of bringing into their worship practice a very strong uh, reading of scripture that shaped their own worship identity. So it's, it's absolutely crystal clear that worship became one of these touchstones of identity for early modern Christians. And that differed depending on which group they were yes. part of. So as I said, eight chapters, broad scope. Um, I dealt with the topic of worship cross-confessionally. So I focused not on just one group, but as many of the groups of Christians in the 16th century that fit within the parameters of my project. So Catholics, Lutherans, Anabaptists, Reformed folks um, of any kind of place, right? They could be Scottish Presbyterians or Genevan Reformed folks. Um, and then I also uh, uh, pretty much as a sort of category on its own kept the Church of England as a category on its own because they're such an interesting group, you know, theologically reformed with a worship practice that still is very much bringing in perhaps more traditional medieval practices. So it's, it's, it's hard to separate them. It's, it's better to leave them almost as a separate group, at least in terms of the practice of worship I found. My focus on practice overall uh, means that I still, however, find some room in the chapters for theological discussion. Not a great deal, but enough to make sense of, for instance, the, the chapters on baptism and communion. I do bring in the theological understanding of the sacraments to help understand why the practice of these various groups differed in the ways that it did. Now, the two chapters I want to just spend a little more time on with you today are the ones that might seem a little surprising or little ones that don't quite fit. And that's the first one and the last one. The going to church business. You think, well, what in the world could you possibly say about that? Um, I actually found this chapter one of the most interesting ones to write um, because what came through very clearly in this chapter was just how much the authorities of the time, be they state authorities or church authorities, had a stake in ensuring that their populations went to church. And that was true across the confessional spectrum. It didn't matter if you were a Catholic in Spain or a reformed person in Geneva or a Lutheran person in Wittenberg or someone in a parish church in England, the authorities had the same idea. Everybody needs to go to church. And that was very, very clear. Um, I wanted to especially highlight this because the going to church issue highlights the similarity of the authorities' viewpoint on the importance of church attendance, but also the fascinatingly similar and often endearing ways in which uh, people had very creative responses, the population had very creative responses to the call to attend church. Um, some folks didn't want to be there, and they found very creative ways of getting around the rules that said you had to be there. The authorities had the same views in mind when it came to church attendance. The people should be in church on Sunday mornings and sometimes also midweek for other services. They should be in church on time. They should be sober. They should be appropriately dressed. They should be attentive not drowsy or chatty and not otherwise distracted and they should be devout and it's, it's amazing you could be again looking at a catholic ordinance 
a Lutheran ordinance, a reformed ordinance, they're exactly the same. They have the exact same commitments. And the authorities did everything they could to achieve these results. And that comes through very clearly as well. The edicts are the same and they have the same rules and they're remarkably persistent. How do you ensure everyone is there? Well, close the taverns, close the shops, ring the bells, ring the bells again. Remind people again and again of the importance of attending worship. Fine people or threaten to fine people if they don't come or if they misbehave when they get there. Warn them of the dangers that are occurring through non-attendance, the spiritual dangers, the danger of God's anger through epidemics or storms or bad harvests. Obviously, the authorities agreed that these bad things were indictments of people's sins and often pointed to the fact that people were not attending church faithfully, and that's why these bad things were happening. Um, the historiographical trend in Reformation studies that for a long time has pointed to the Reformation as a time of social disciplining comes through really clearly when you look at these ordinances regarding church attendance. It is absolutely crystal clear. Now, from the perspective of the congregation, right, from the people who were receiving these edicts, uh, the realities of church could look very different. Now, one important caveat the records usually preserve the, the information about people who were in trouble for one reason or another. In other words, the quietly contented don't leave a lot of trace in the records. So the records tend to highlight the bad behavior, the folks who didn't come. But there is clearly, there was clearly a proportion of populations who did not want to follow these edicts in quite the same way as the authorities expected. Some people just didn't come at all. They preferred other activities on church service times. Um, some of them preferred target practice or sport activities or drinking or gaming or sleeping in. Some people felt they couldn't come. Uh, there's some, some rather sad testimonies, especially I found some in the Genevan consistory records of women who said that they couldn't come to church even though they were supposed to be there because they didn't have the right clothes. Um, one lady said her clothes were at the pawnbrokers, basically. Another one said that she was very poor and she felt that when she went to church, her neighbors looked down on her. And so she didn't want to go, right? So there's that kind of problem. Um, some people came, but in church, they reproduce their traditional patterns of sociability, which means that they chatted or flirted or made business deals or had a nap especially during the very long sermons, right? Um, some people tried to follow the ordinances and I almost feel sorry for them as well because you find these people who are trying to follow the edicts and they come to church as meant, as meant to do and they bring their whole family as they're meant to do and then they get in trouble for that, especially if they bring screaming infants, okay? Because there's no Sunday school, there's no nursery or anything like that. So if everyone comes with the screaming babies, there's a problem. Um, often the babies are being brought for baptism, by the way, that's why they're there. Um, in Scotland, there were quite a lot of um, complaints, often from the pastors, about babies drowning out their sermons, basically. You can imagine it from the point of view of the pastor. He has worked all week on preparing a sermon, and now the howls of infants are drowning it out. 
So uh, the, 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 the consistory records, the, the Kirk session records from Perth uh, make rules to say that if you are bringing your baby for baptism on a Sunday, as you're supposed to, will you please wait outside of church, presumably a certain distance away, uh, until the time of the baptism, and then you can come in with the baby because otherwise the baby is drowning things out, right? So there's, there's that kind of problem um, going on when you come and take, take, think about what does it mean to go to church? And finally, some people bring their conflicts with them to church. We sometimes perhaps have this vision of church attendance in the Reformation as a, a whole lot of very pious people behaving very well. Well, that didn't really happen. Uh, the church door is not an impermeable barrier. The problems people have outside of church, they bring into church. And so there are accounts of people bringing their conflict to church with them. Uh, also, particularly in Scotland, accounts of stabbings or brawls during church services um, or immediately afterwards. Often these are a result of ongoing feuds and the church door is not a barrier to the feud. The feud continues even in the church, in the church space. So in short, when it comes to going to church, the authority's vision of everyone in the community participating in worship reverently and quietly doesn't always match the reality. And that I find is a very good insight as we start thinking about what does it mean to practice one's faith in the 16th century when it came to worship. Now, my second focal point is the whole other end, worship outside of church and particularly worship at the end of life. Let me show you a picture first before that though. So the going to church, um, this is a 1635, a detail from a 1635 painting of the Laurentius Church in Veist in the Netherlands. Um, and here you have people attending church. Now this is a portrait, not a photograph, right? So this is the painter giving an idea of what people might have been doing in church. And you can see there's a lot of different things going on. You can see the little dog and the kids playing with the dog and the mom here is breastfeeding her baby. And this lady really looks like she's dropped off to sleep. Um, you can't really say anything else. Now I'm sure you know, all sorts of different activities were happening, but I thought this picture really does help again, give us a sense of what it might have been like. Not particularly reverent always and definitely not always quiet. Okay. Now, going from public worship to worship at the sickbed. Um, at first glance, you would think that worship at the sickbed or at the deathbed, that's like the most intimate experience of worship, right? That's when it's at its smallest point, the sick person and the priest or the pastor. Um, the confessional differences in terms of deathbed rituals are very striking. The Catholics, the Lutherans, the Church of England, all had rituals that featured bringing communion to the sick and the dying. Uh, and these rituals could include a final confession, absolution, a partaking of the sacrament of the Eucharist, an anointing. There's all sorts of rituals that happen in that process. Uh, the reformed communities by and large did not do so. Uh, they, uh, their deathbed scenes featured readings from scripture, prayers and words of comfort. And that's basically where it stopped, right? It didn't go much beyond that. It didn't even necessarily require the presence of a pastor. In all these cases, however, even though to us, it might seem like it's a very intimate or private moment, um, the sick person, the dying person is very rarely alone. In fact, the deathbed is quite crowded. And this painting from the Dutch school of 1600, the last rites shows you something of this, right? There's the man who's sick and he's getting anointed, but here's all the family and the relatives crowding around, 
It's not exactly a private thing. Um, the Lutheran and Church of England liturgies were very clear that it was important to have more than just the sick person take that last communion. So let me give you, I'm gonna show you, share some quotations with you. So this is the Book of Common Prayer of 1549. The sick person shall always desire some either of his own house or else of his neighbors to receive the Holy Communion with him. For that shall be to him a singular great comfort and of their part, a great token of charity. So the Book of Common Prayer is saying, your neighbors should participate with you. It's a Christian thing for them to do to support you as the sick or dying person. At the same time, we have to be clear that the Lutherans and the Church of England uh, really wanted to make sure to distinguish what they saw as perhaps the rights of the Catholics, which were too focused on the individual dying person. And now making communion around the deathbed a communal event kind of made more of the distinction between a Catholic last rite and a Protestant deathbed liturgy, right? That, that there was a distinction there. Um, across the board, there was a very strong concern to have what's called an edifying death, right? That meant that the deathbed scene should be one that helps show the truth of a particular confessional group. Um, and it was important in the narratives that survived to show that there was truth on one side or the other and that the deathbed scene showed that. In other words, a person died in an edifying manner was a sign that their faith was the true faith. Um, what is important to highlight is when you think about the reformed who largely did not have communion at the deathbed and you wonder why, why, why is there this difference? Well, part of it was again, to mark the distinction from the Catholic last rites rituals, the reformed were very strongly against that. Um, and some churches then, and in fact now in more conservative reformed denomination, look to 16th century edicts and synod rules. So for instance, the Synod of Middelburg in the Netherlands in 1581 said, the sacraments shall not be administered except in the normal gathering at the place where the congregation ordinarily meets together. And in the 16th century and thereafter, particularly among conservative reformed communities, that was read as a ban on sickbed or deathbed communions. You couldn't do that, that that was not allowed. Now, what is interesting to see is that Calvin, John Calvin actually gave a different take on this. And I found this absolutely fascinating. In 1563, so the year before he died, right? He wrote a letter to Caspar Olevianus. If you know Heidelberg Catechism, he's one of the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism. So Calvin to Caspar Olevianus in 1563. And he's talking about this whole business of bringing communion to the sick or the dying. I know that issue is undecided while the grounds for and against are not lacking. But by the nature, the purpose and the right use of the sacrament, I believe that I can rightly conclude that one may not well rob someone who is suffering from a lengthy sickness or is in danger of life from such a privilege. When a believer sees that he must leave this world, it cannot be any other way than that he is frightened and assaulted by manifold temptations. And then he shall rightly desire to arm himself in order that he may be able to stand up in this warfare. May one then rob him of this entirely unique means of salvation that so strengthens his trust 
that he joyfully faces the battle and triumphs? Clearly, Calvin felt that there was a ground for bringing communion to the bedside of the sick and of the dying. Um, Calvin went on to specify that any bedside celebration of the sacrament should feature preaching and should take place with other believers present, just as in church. But he did leave room for it, right? This is really interesting to think about. So to sum up, um, and in a moment we'll, we'll, we'll move over to the question period, but to sum up, I have deeply enjoyed this project. Um, it has allowed me to bring out a wide range of voices that detail their experiences and expectations of worship, from public worship in church to household gatherings and everything in between. And what is very clear is how deeply ingrained these practices became and how quickly they became hallmarks of identity for believers, especially in times of confessional conflict. So what I'll do now is I'll stop share and we'll bring in Graham. Graham, you go ahead. Okay, good evening, uh, Karina, and good evening, colleagues. Uh, great pleasure uh, to be with you to celebrate uh, the publication of this book, and I've had the chance to read it, and I feel privileged to have done so. And I can only commend it to you, colleagues, in this way, which is that it's truly a mark of Karine's scholarship that, on the one hand, she has written a book which is entirely accessible to a very wide range of readers, but at the same time is full of reflective insights and analysis drawn from an array of sources uh, across 16th century religious culture. So I can only commend it to you all. And I'm only going to try to ask sort of very short questions, Corinne, to allow you to speak further to, to your work rather than get in the way. And, and if I can start, I suppose my opening question would be, you, you set out for us there the, the thematic chapters that, that you've written. And I'd wonder if you could just speak to us, you know, either as a, as a writer or what you, what you intend for your reader to be the benefits or the advantages and disadvantages, I suppose, of a thematic rather than a chronological approach and an approach that covers different religious cultures rather than you know, writing a book about worshiping with 16th century Catholics or one of the other uh, religions. Thanks. Thank you. So yes, the, the question about a thematic approach. When I started thinking about the book, um, I mean, you could have imagined a chronological approach, I guess, where you might do sort of the early period of the 16th century and then the mid period and the late period. My worry was it would lead to a lot of repetition and you'd almost feel like you'd be swinging around again for a second pass through the same kinds of ideas. It seemed to me that a more helpful way for readers when they're thinking about aspects of worship is to think thematically. In other words, what would a reader want? And I was, I was pretty clear in my mind that if I were a reader and I was just sort of dipping into the book or I had a particular issue in mind, the thematic approach made a whole lot more sense. In other words, if it was baptism that I wanted to know about, well, hey, there's the chapter on baptism and I can focus on that. And then cross-confessionally seemed really important to me, um, partly because worship was such a hallmark of identity where people understood themselves as being not something else by virtue of how they worshiped. And so in explaining the practice of worship, we also get into the complexities of the confessional divides in 16th century Europe. And in fact, one of the most interesting things is to watch how even within a particular confessional group, at the margins, there are times where people say, well, you know what? Um, I actually liked the way we used to do things. 
and I want to keep on doing that. So to have as, as complete a story as possible, it seemed to me that it had to be cross-confessional, that, that it wouldn't make sense to almost isolate each confessional group for its own, from its own, for its own practices. Thank you, and uh, I hope you appreciate, Karen, that the style of my questioning is trying to be the opposite to a consistorial approach and just <laughs> encourage you to, to, to speak to, to the subject. So I suppose if I take I take that a little further and as it were, just pick out one social group mm -hmm. who exists across all the different uh, confessions and just ask you a question really about, about poor people mm -hmm. and about the illiterate poor, the very poor um, within these religious cultures. I mean, is the conclusion unavoidable that across the early modern periods, the poor and the illiterate are increasingly marginalized within their own religious cultures? Or do you think that perhaps historians perhaps tend to overestimate the significance of reading as the gateway to participation in religious culture and identity in this period, which is sort of an implication perhaps of a, of a lot of your book? Thanks. I think that's a very a perceptive question. It's, it's hard, right? Because as historians, one of our main sources is texts, right? So we already have a, a, a bent towards texts. Uh, images, obviously architecture, if you look at the work of Andrew Spicer, for instance, there's a lot of really excellent work there. But our focus by and large is on texts. And so it almost feels like we're going to either not be hearing the voice of those who couldn't read and write, or we're just gonna be discounting it. But I think we have to remember just how strongly the 16th century was still an oral culture. And if you think about how much was being invested in preaching, I mean, if, it, if, if, if text was the way to go, why in the world were people spending so much time preaching? But that the transfer of ideas through oral communication was still front and center in the 16th century. So whether you could read or not did not bar you from participation in worship. And that was very clear. And it didn't matter where you were, right? Um, among Protestants, especially, there's always this concern that, well, the Catholic mass, good grief, it was in Latin and nobody spoke Latin. So how did those people understand any of it? That's a misconception. Um, it is very clear that folks who didn't know any Latin still knew where they were in the mass, right? They didn't sort of sit there bewildered. They knew what was happening. And part of it was because the ritual was the same time after time, that helped a great deal. But also I think we, yeah, we take our own conceptions of what it means to not be able to read and write and, and, and assume that that's this big barrier. I think the reformers and everyone really in 16th century, in the 16th century world had lots of ways to get around these problems. I mean, the whole business, for instance, of having a four singer or a cantor to sing the Psalms. I mean, part of that is because everyone doesn't have a book, right? And they're still learning how to sing these things. Oh, your four singer is there to help you figure that out. Um, so there's lots of ways around these problems that, that really seem to suggest that I think even illiterate people could follow along without too many difficulties. What's interesting, actually, where you find there to be a problem is where there are um, sort of clashes between different language groups where different vernaculars come into conflict with each other. So I have in the book a letter from a young student from Geneva who sent off to Guienne in southern France, southwestern France. He's a terrible time. Nobody understands his accent. Okay, so there you're having oral cultures and there's a problem of understanding. 
Uh, the same thing in some of the reports in Zurich, where the congregations would send in reports about their pastor. And they said, uh, this pastor's not working out. None of us can understand him. And that was an accent problem, right? So, so again, the oral problem is less significant, I think, and, and the illiterate problem, I think, is less significant than we make it out to be, I would say. Uh, brilliant, thanks. I couldn't agree more, really, with, <laughs> with that. Um, and, uh, you know, this idea of the Bible being given a voice that comes out in a lot of what people are saying, that really connects with, with, with what you just mentioned. And I suppose if I slightly pursue uh, our old culture a little bit, I mean, another um, uh, theme that you pick up upon is really sort of music, music making, you know, bell ringing, this mm -hmm. kind of world of our old culture. And so I wondered if I could put a little phrase, I can't remember where I picked it up. Uh, we make sound, they make noise. In other words, that people's sense of religious identity encourages them to discriminate between sounds which are of them and, mm -hmm. uh, and sounds which are of us, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so this idea that all these apparently ephemeral elements can actually speak really to the heart of division, social, uh, social divisions of religious identity. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, this is very clear in places where two confessional groups are living side by side. That's really where you see these problems that you're talking about. Um, so particularly, say, in, in France. So majority Catholic country, but with a strong Huguenot, Reformed, Protestant minority. Okay. What do they fight over? Well, one of the things they fight over is who controls the bells? Who gets to ring the bells? Because the bell is what sends you to worship right? So who gets to ring it at the right moment? And in some places you get competing bells. So the Catholics ring the bell for their service and they're nicely underway and then suddenly the reforms bell starts out and the poor Catholics can't hear anymore what their priest is saying or vice versa, right? Um, so that's part of it. And also um, conflicts where, especially in the 17th century in France, where the Huguenots' rights were being eroded, one of the ways to erode that was over sound. So Catholics complaining that the sound of Huguenot psalm singing was drowning out their religious Catholic processions. Or, you know, th th there's this, this sort of conflict over who controls the sound world. And exactly as you said, the sound of someone who is not of your group becomes very much a problem, right? And therefore it's something to fight about or to uh, essentially target a minority group over their sound because their sound is not appropriate in this particular context. But yeah, that was one of the, and we don't really think about that necessarily. It does come up today perhaps um, in some really interesting ways. There were some conflicts. Um, so in Michigan, in Hamtranic, which has a big Muslim community, um, conflicts over whether the Muslim call to prayer is okay or not. It's very interesting because church bells was fine for a lot of people, but the sound, the sound, the call to prayer was not. And it's very interesting. It's exactly, it's a modern equivalent of this kind of pressure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and as you say, in those mixed areas, it's obviously can be a point of great controversy, can't it, on that regard. Um, you can turn your face away from things, but it's hard to stop <laughs> hearing people when they're making noise. Is it, is it in Dermot McCulloch's uh, book, the example of those nuns in Stockholm who shoved cheese into their ears to stop hearing nasty Lutheran sermons? I, I can't remember. Yeah. 
I, I think that's one I've heard more than once. It might not be cheese always, sometimes it's cotton, but the same idea, right? You just block your ears so that you can't hear the sermon of those who are trying to convert you to a new group. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and carrying on another theme, I want to ask you about the experience of women and how you would draw that out from across the themes in your book. Um, I suppose, again, maybe to, to put a question on it, um, is, is the conclusion really unavoidable that women are being progressively excluded from religious practice and authority in the Reformation period? I mean, I think there's a lot you could point to that would say that this is so. Um, certain rituals, uh, for instance, even just the basic one of emergency baptism, right, which is something done by midwives. Okay, it's not technically a formal act of worship in that way, but it is a ritual that has to do with the salvation of the infant, right? It's kind of crucial. And it was something women did because they were the midwives, right? Um, in areas that were reformed in general, this was strongly uh, frowned upon. It's not okay. You don't do that. That's not a valid baptism. Um, in other places, there was sort of more wiggle room for it, and it was still okay. So the Church of England had it as conditional baptisms, and then they would bring the baby into church and just kind of reconfirm that, that babe baptism that had been done as an emergency baptism. But it is one of the places where women had a role that in certain areas was definitely taken away. That's very clear. Now, there are other areas where women had rituals, um, but those then eroded actually after the Reformation. And the ritual I'm thinking about most is the ritual of churching, which was a ritual that women participated in after they gave birth. Uh, the Lutherans had rituals for churching. The Church of England in the Book of Common Prayer had churching rituals. Um, these lasted actually for quite a while, right? We don't done now, but it was very strong. And it was one way of, first of all, upholding the women's relevance as a person in the community that they had gone through an experience that needed to be remembered and essentially marked basically. Um, but it also uh, allowed the women to have this sort of presence almost in this, in this particular rite. Uh, now, you can look at it another way to say it's sort of saying something about their uncleanliness, but even so, it did say something important about what they had gone through, about the experience that they had gone through. Uh, beyond that, what is interesting, I think, is that women in the congregations would still have fairly significant roles. In other words, they are still full members in terms of receiving communion. Right? They still on the, on the basis of, of just being part of the congregation, they're not ruled out in any way. Um, but in most places, they have no real um, status in leadership. And that's very clear that the, the Lutherans, uh, the Reformed, the Church of England did not really have a space for them. Among the Anabaptists, probably more, at least in the early years, but that definitely did dwindle away. So yeah, so the experience of women, it's a bit of a mixed bag and it depends where you look. I think communities kept their sense of the importance of the women's role for longer than we might think. So I'm thinking of one of the Genevan examples where there was this conflict over baptism. Um, the Genevans had a hard time over baptism and the names given to babies at baptism. Uh, this is well after the Reformation got underway and a particular father brought his baby to baptism, did not like the name that the pastor chose for his baby, which wasn't the name he wanted to give his baby, took his baby home and had a midwife baptized the baby with the correct name, the name dad wanted, 
Okay, now that got him in huge trouble. The consistory was furious, but it really says something about the enduring role of women that this dad's first reaction was to go home and find the midwife to do it for him. Do I have time for another yeah, question? So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so this one, if you if you uh, beg your indulgence, is sort of preceded by a, a very brief uh, story. And I'll tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how far, as it were, all these priests and reform ministers and other educated worthies are able to sort of impose their strictly divided vision of humanity according to confessions on ordinary people in this period. And the example that came somehow to mind when reading her book uh, is of a, of a little village which is divided between Catholics and Calvinists. And there's, there's a party to celebrate a wedding. Mm -hmm. And it's in one of the properties which is on Calvinist land. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Calvinist father invites all his Catholic neighbors to come to his son's wedding party. Why wouldn't he? Everyone comes, there's meat, there's drink, there's dancing. All this is not so great, you know, especially since it's Lent for Catholics. Mm -hmm. And so they shouldn't really be dancing at all. Of course, the Calvinists shouldn't be dancing and the Catholics shouldn't be eating meat. They're all in trouble. Um, some Capuchins come past during the party and they're offered some meat to eat. Everyone sniggers, nobody leaves the party. And the, the Capuchins go off and tell the local priest and they all get in trouble. And it's interesting the responses because the Catholics say we did nothing wrong because on our Calvinist neighbor's property, it wasn't Lent. A, it wasn't Lent because they don't have Lent. Mm -hmm. And B, it wasn't Lent because they're on the Julian calendar and it wasn't Lent anyway <laughs> while we were at the party. Leave us alone, we did nothing wrong. And the Calvinists say they did nothing wrong because they deny they were dancing and none of the Catholics tell the minister that they were. But the Calvinist minister and the Catholic priest have to work together mm -hmm. to try to get into the bottom of this story. Mm -hmm. And all the ordinary people clam up and won't say anything to anybody about what's yeah. happened. I suppose, not to be too long-winded, but my point would sort of be, you know, our sort of, I hesitate to, you know, the phrase everyday ecumenism. Yep. Bill Shields and other, you know, is there some sense in which kind of just being neighbors, yeah. a, a sort of shared popular Christian idea survives all this effort to divide people by religious identity and that some older ideas are just sort of there and continue along and people are perfectly able to distinguish between my Catholic neighbor who's a decent fella mm -hmm. and Catholics in general who they may not like. Absolutely. And I think you, you really have hit the nail on the head. Again, on these border areas, um, this is very common, right? Because your bonds of sociability or connection do not disappear. And I, I wrote an article for another project on uh, the, the, exactly this problem. That's to say, border areas between Geneva and Savoy, where, you know, there's Catholics on one side and Reformed Protestants on the other, and yet they work together. So, the, the Protestant father who wants a Catholic as the godfather for his baby. And the consistory says, no, that's not okay. And he says, I promised my friend that when I'd have my child, my first child, that he would be the godfather. And this, this is a good man and he can do a lot of good for us. And I want this to happen. Um, or the, the young lady who is uh, engaged to marry a Catholic boy and this is not okay. And she says, but that's what I want, and, and this is a good family, and we want to be connected. And so the, the authorities, I think, have a hard time with the popular willingness to be more flexible about the boundaries of worship and what is okay or not okay in terms of those connections built up. Um, and, and you can see that again and again. I mean, the French 
national synods put in rules that you may not attend other people's you know celebrations and the worship activities and so on and the fact that they have to do that says that it's happening right um so yeah there is more sociability across the board than you might think especially if you just looked at the edicts or you looked at the rules it would look very divided but when you start looking at the practice there are more points of connection it's not always happy sometimes these points of connection can be actually the point of difference, right? The point where we fight against this other group. Um, if you read uh, Ben Kaplan's book, uh, Cunegonde's Kidnapping, okay, that's a great book, um, but it really shows you later on, that's in the 1700s, how these pressures can divide communities as well as bring them together, even among the laity. So it, it, it depends on the time and the situation in the family. But yes, I would say that there are certainly instances of people exercising some kind of everyday connections with their neighbors who are of a different group than they are, absolutely. Well, Karen, at that point, I just can hope that my questions have somehow reflected to your audience, the kind of way in which your book just sort of stimulated thoughts and, 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 and you know, in the notes that I was uh, writing as I was reading that just a uh, fantastic way that you've drawn such a complex landscape into such a clear and insightful image. So, so uh, thank you very kindly uh, for your work and it's greatly appreciated. Thank you, Graham. It looks like we have a few questions in the chat. So let me see, I even see there's one on Hungary. So Graham, you might have the Hungary question. Okay, so Sabine has a question. She says, when you describe Lutheranism in your book, is that Lutheranism in the German lands or also in other countries? Um, so primarily, Sabine, when I dealt with Lutheranism, it's primarily in the German lands. I do have some examples from Scandinavia. So I do have some examples from Sweden, from Finland even. Um, so there's some early examples from the late 16th, 17th century from Scandinavian Lutheran areas. So it's not just the German lands. And then you had a second question. Am I describing various confessions in a context where they were the dominant confession or also minority context? Um, a bit of both. Uh, it really does depend. So. Um, in some instances, it's majority culture. In other cases where you have, for instance, Huguenots in France or perhaps Anabaptists, wherever they were, they're always going to be the minority confession, pretty much. So yes, it's both, both majority and minority practice. And then there was another question. Uh, any key points about Hungarian Reformation worship? So here's where, Graham, you're going to get to say something too. Um, I didn't really go into Eastern Europe, partly because of the language barriers um, and partly because it seemed that I wanted to really focus on an area of Western Europe where there were these contacts among these groups. As soon as you get into Eastern Europe, you have to deal with a whole new set of variables, including the presence of Eastern Orthodox Christians, uh, Muslims further south. It's, it's a bit of a different landscape. And I just felt that I didn't really have the expertise necessarily to go into that. But Graham Murdoch <laughs> has done a lot of work on the Magyar in Hungary. Um, and Graham, is there anything you want to say about the Hungarian Reformation practices? Anything, you know, a couple of comments that sort of spring to mind? Uh, Karen, you're, you're far too modest. We all know your work on the Reformation in Eastern Europe from, from your book. But um, I mean, I suppose the one only thing that strikes me is, 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 you know, you've got a very pluralist landscape to take account of. And I think it does actually add the picture from Northwestern Europe in that way. 
but also I think it just, you know, it, I was thinking, for example, in my question about, about illiteracy, mm-hmm. um, just looking at, you know, the Calvinists in, in 16th century Hungary are forever writing edicts and so on about how important it is for everybody to have access to the Bible and that this is absolutely vital, but they haven't finished translating it yet. Mm-hmm. And they won't have finished until the 1590s. But what they mean is they want some parts of the Bible to be spoken to people in the authentic language that they understand. Mm-hmm. And there's just that sense which they had, I believe you can uh, tell me if I'm wrong, just this sense of the power of that special listening to the words of the Bible. I'm coming around to the view that that's just absolutely at the heart of what you know a lot of the reformers were after. You know, that faith comes by hearing. This is what they read and then this is what they thought. I don't know if you had any comment. No, I think that's entirely right. And and what's what's fascinating about Hungary, of course, is that they saw themselves as part of the broader Calvinist world, right? So they're very interested in what's going on in Geneva. They send their students to Geneva, right? There's that connection back and forth that Geneva trains pastors and then they go back, these young Hungarian men go back to Hungary. Um, the one point I found very interesting about Hungarian worship, and I did talk about it a bit in the in the section on music, is that the Hungarians, as reformed Christians, would sing the Psalms. But there was a big debate in Hungary as to what melodies you should use, right? Is it, do Genevan Psalms have to be sung to Genevan tunes? That's the basic question. Is, is it one package, right? Um, in other places, clearly it was, right? The Dutch sing the, the Genevan Psalm tunes as well as the Genevan metrical Psalms in, in Dutch. Um, in Hungary, there was a big debate and there were a number of Hungarian reformed Christians who said, wait a minute, we're Hungarians. We want to sing Magyar tunes. We want to sing the Genevan Psalms, but we want to sing them to Magyar tunes. And that was a very contentious matter. So again, how, how worship shapes identity is really fascinating. And it can go even to what music you sing in the 16th century. That's just fascinating. All right, I'm going down the list of questions from Suzanne. Um, Was there significant variety in Lutheran public practices indicated in the German church orders in the Kirchenordnungen? Um, Because the church orders were done at the level of the princes or the rulers of each state, there was some variety, right? Um, And there were also different, especially after Luther's death, there were more moderate Lutherans or more hardline Lutherans, and they didn't always see the same way. So the ordinances were not identical. It's not like there was one format and everybody did it the same way. There was a variety of of views within that. Um, Where you see the biggest variety, I think, is actually in terms of the comfort level with images in churches. And whether you have these Catholic, these Lutheran churches that look very much like Catholic churches in terms of the images in them, or whether you have a pared down worship space. And that depended a whole lot on whether the Lutheran version in that state was a more image friendly or image hostile. And that was, there was a variety, there was a spectrum within Lutheran practice so that you could see differences there. So the Kirchenordnungen are very worth reading uh, and they are very fascinating in terms of the level of detail that they apply to worship. Um, who should come? When should they come? How should it be done? What should you wear? They have a whole section in some of the Kirchenordnungen as appropriate clothes to wear at communion services. So it's really quite interesting to watch how detailed some of these ordinances can be. 
So Randall, um, what was the most unusual or unique practices you discovered around communion practices? Well, the one, I mean, there's a couple of them I really like. Um, I liked the uh, Lutheran one. Uh, they have, I mean, if you think about it, there's a logistics problem. And it's just the basic problem of how do you get a very large congregation through the ritual in a manageable amount of time? If everybody has to take the bread and everybody has to take the cup, how do you do that logistically in a big church, right? So um, some Lutherans developed what was known as Vandal Communion, which means wandering or walking communion. And it was a very smart way of doing it. Um, it needed a fairly big church and it needed a church with more than one pastor. And how it worked is you would go up for communion. So you lined up and went forward for communion and you went to the altar, right? And on each side of the altar table, there'd be a kneeling bench, one on each side, one on the left, one on the right, and two members of the clergy, okay? And what you would do is you would come up for your bread. So you kneel down, you receive the bread on the left-hand side, okay? Then you get up and you walk behind the altar and you come around to the other side and kneel down and receive the wine on the other side. That's a walking communion. I thought that was very cool. I thought it was a, such a smart way of dealing with the problem of moving people through the ritual in a fairly efficient fashion. I thought that was pretty amazing. That was number one. The other one that I found fascinating uh, is to do with how people lined up for communion. And this was uh, particularly it comes through in, in reformed accounts in reformed churches when they lined up for communion they lined up all the men first and then all the women first, and they did so by order of social rank. I found that really interesting because you'd think, okay, the church, everyone is equal in the eyes of God. Well, no, not so much. Um, and people are lined up in order of precedence, social precedence. And in some cases in France, for instance, there were squabbles that broke up in the communion line with people kind of elbowing each other and saying, hey, 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 I'm more important than you are. I need to go first. Uh, so kind of a sad in some ways, but also very real, right? The sense that status doesn't disappear at the church door and people still care about where they are in the, in the procession going forward to receive the sacrament. I just, I found that very interesting too. All right, uh, let's see where we get to next. The next one from Jim West, uh, what was the most unusual practice you discovered in regard to baptism? Um, I found it interesting in baptism to consider this whole business of the role of godparents and which churches retained godparents and which ones did not and why. Um, and to understand, because in many, um, essentially North American Protestant churches that emerged from the reformed faith, by and large, the idea of godparents is not one people know about. You might know about someone who might be a sponsor at a baptism, but you don't talk about godparents. Godparents is thought of as something, you know, foreign. We don't do that. Um, and yet the reformed churches of Geneva, the Swiss reformed churches retained the concept of godparents. In fact, all the way up till the present. So I was baptized in the Swiss reformed church in Zurich, actually. And I have godparents and my Parents made sure that we had godparents, and that was just part of the Swiss reform practice. It wasn't thought of as something Catholic or something 
oddly different that reform people didn't do. Um, so I found that very interesting. And I, it's something I'd like to do more work on. Uh, I know Karen Spearling has done some work on this, but the whole concept of godparents and what that meant and why people found godparents important and retained them in reformed communities for so long, I think it's worth further investigation. I think that would be something I'd like to, to do some more work on. All right, going down the list, uh, Shirley rules. Um, how or when does civil authority related to mandatory church going begin to break down? Uh, honestly, that practice um, probably continues for longer than you'd think. Um, now, it became harder to enforce when there was more pluralism within the communities. In other words, uh, an authority telling people that church attendance is mandated really only works when there is one group or one very strongly majority group in that community. As soon as there are distinctions or different groups, it becomes very hard for the authorities to mandate it because people just have so many other options. So I would say that by the time you get to a more open religious community, so it could be like the 19th century, um, it's going to be more difficult for authorities to enforce mandates on church attendance. Um, and even in the 16th century, the 17th century, the enforcement or the edict is one thing. The enforcement is something else again. I'm not sure that it's very clear that the authorities always had such a good handle, especially in bigger areas, as to whether people were in church or not, even though they wanted them to be there. All right. Um, can I speak to the liturgical calendar? This is Calvin Lane. Can I speak to the liturgical calendar, especially in the reformed tradition and preaching? Uh, if in certain scripturally inspired feasts were abolished, if the urge to address the biblical subject found its way into preaching on that day? So that is a good question. So the best record we have, the problem we have is that we do not have complete sets of sermons from a lot of people. Uh, Calvin is one of the few, John Calvin is one of the few, because they actually had a plan in Geneva to copy down his sermons as he preached them, right? There's the man taking the notes as he, as he preached, and that's quite amazing that that happened. So we have for Calvin a more complete record, and in the case of Calvin's Geneva, it is very clear that the um, practice of Lectio Continua, in other words, you preach your way through the Bible, um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, each book at a time, that that continued, but that there were exceptions, not so much for feast days, like not so much for Epiphany or Ascension or even Easter or Christmas, but definitely for the four quarterly communions, that there you find that there's a, there's a break. They stop and they take a different subject. They, they want to find a sermon subject for the Sundays of the quarterly communions that match the fact that the sacrament is being celebrated. So that was very clear. Um, in other churches, it varies a little more. Um, the one that has the most sort of mixed uh, bag, at least in the Swiss lands, is Basel. Basel's churches follow a mixture of a um, set of Lectio Continua preaching, lectionary preaching, and then preaching where the pastor kind of just picks. And so in Basel, you have more of a sense that they would, they would stop and mark certain periods of the liturgical year. But there's no real consistency um, in terms of, well, there's no, I haven't found anything that says that this is how we are going to do it. We are going to preach on these texts at this time. 
it does seem to be a bit a bit variable. So that's maybe not the most helpful answer, but it's definitely the the, the accurate one, I think. Uh, you might want to look. Uh, Max Engema has a book on preaching in the Swiss lands. It's in French. Uh, you might find that helpful. It has a lot of very helpful information in it. Um, Esther, um, the competition over who controls bell sounds. What were some of the different visual or physical signs in the worship spaces? I mean, that's a very great question. So obviously one of the most visibly striking part of coming into a worship space is what does it look like when you go in, right? And uh, Catholic churches, especially big ones, ornate ones, would have quite a lot of um, artwork that would be very striking, right? You would know you're in a church with visual uh, artwork, statues, frescoes, uh, candles, um, images of all kinds. Um, the other thing you would notice, I think very clearly, is how is the church interior set up? So in a Catholic church, the focus would be on the high altar, often behind a screen known in England as a wood screen that divided up the, the part of the church that was for the laity from the part of the church that was mainly for the, the clergy. Um, and on top of the wood screen, so you think of like a big wooden sort of barrier with see-through slats. And on the top of that, it was often flat. There'd be images up there uh, in what's called the wood loft and there you would often find uh, perhaps a, a crucifix and a couple of figures of the disciples together and maybe Mary. Um, so a lot of images to look at when you walked into a Catholic church. When you walked into a Reformed church, obviously it looked very different. Um, the images, generally speaking, were absent, not completely, right? It's not not right to say there are no images in reformed churches in the 16th century. One thing that did happen is the reformed churches used text as ornamentation. So you could walk into a reformed church and see on the walls that have been whitewashed text from scripture in, in really large letters, like you couldn't miss it kind of thing, not small. Uh, and then the, these texts would be printed uh, up on the walls for people to see. So it's almost scripture as a visual memento, but also scripture as art, you know, done in a very ornamented way. Um, if you go in Zurich to the church of Sankt Peter, you can still see that. Um, it still has those, those biblical verses on the walls, on the whitewashed walls, and they have a big impact. They're, they're very striking, right? Um, the focus in a Reformed church and often in a Lutheran church as well would be on the pulpit, okay? So the pulpit becomes a, a very strong feature. Um, seating arrangements change. Uh, as soon as sermons become important, you have to put in benches because people want to sit and need to sit to listen to the sermon. Um, and then there's questions also about seating. And I have a whole section in my book on seating. Um, Raymond Menser has done a lot of work on this as well. And if you're interested in this question, you should read Ray's work uh, as well. Um, uh, who sits where? Again, this, this business of status still plays a role. Uh, there are seats reserved for certain people and there are fights that break out over seating. Who sits where? Who gets the best seat? Who, who has the line of sight on the pulpit? Um, it, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. So you do find that um, you can see in the churches themselves uh, hallmarks of which confessional group is, is in, that, in that group. Uh, the Church of England. Um, so for them, it must have been so confusing. So under Henry VIII, the churches are uh, still looking very Catholic inside. 
Under Edward VI, his son, the images are largely taken down and under protest, right? There are a lot of congregations that don't want their images taken down. And some of the committee groups that are set to take images down come under attack from local parishioners who don't want the images taken down. But under Edward, images largely disappear. In some cases, communities don't destroy their images, they hide them, okay? Under Mary, Edward's half-sister, England goes back to being Catholic and the images pop right back in again. And under Elizabeth, the last of the Tudor children, uh, we're back to being Protestant in a more moderate fashion, but by and large, images are not really supposed to be there. So there's a lot of toing and froing in a very short space of time. And I always think that the English Christians must have, you know, gotten sort of spiritual whiplash just from the amount of changes they had to go through in their in their worship space. That you would really notice that in in very striking ways. All right, um, let's see uh, what else we have. Physical spaces, we got that. Okay. Um, quarterly communions. Calvin, did he call for quarterly, com weekly communions? Yes, he did. So, so Calvin called for weekly communions. Calvin would have preferred a weekly communion uh, system. And his thought was, uh, because there are three churches in Geneva, you could have a weekly communion by rotation. In other words, it's not every church every Sunday having communion, but it would rotate through the churches. One week in Saint-Pierre, one week in Saint-Gervais, one week in La Madeleine, and then round again, basically, so that everyone could go to communion every week if they wanted to. Um, why was there a move away from this in Reformed churches? I think, so Calvin had wanted this, the city council said no, and I do think it was a hallmark of uh, identity, that they were fe fearing that if you had communion every week, it would be perceived as too Catholic. Now, obviously, in other areas, weekly communions, not in reformed areas, but in Lutheran churches, and eventually, not, not for a long time, but eventually in the Church of England, uh, weekly communion becomes the norm. Um, so other places worried less about this, but clearly in reformed areas, this was a concern. So quarterly communions. Um, in Scotland, by the 17th century, um, you could have maybe communion just once a year, but it was a huge deal. Okay, it's a major, major deal. It was almost like the moment of revivals for Scotland in the 17th century, the communion celebrations. Um, so there was this sense that it would be, at the, the, at the start, I think the problem was it was perceived that it could be too close to the Catholic practices that people were trying to move away from, that that was why we were going in a different direction. All right, can I speak more about disturbances in church services? Yes, Amanda. Um, there is a large problem with noise in church. I mean, so again, we have a very funny idea of what church should be like. Uh, in, in the churches I've been at, um, there's a sense in which reverent silence, Hello. except when you're singing, reverent silence is what you're supposed to be doing. And um, in that My, sense- Call me in half an hour. Oops. I'm in a Zoom meeting. I've got someone on the phone. Okay, good. All right, so um, the, the sense that church communities were at worship was quite a noisy experience. The dogs um, were a problem. The children, um, in, in many places, the children were to sit together and be under the supervision of their teachers, but that didn't always work. Um, and so there's a lot of noise within the church itself. Um, 
weekday services especially were difficult because sometimes they competed with other activities. Um, there are some uh, German church leaders who complained very bitterly that during weekday services, they were disrupted by um, local people using the church as a shortcut between two different parts of town and just walking through while the service was going on. So there is, there is this problem of disturbances. It's not very quiet. It is, it is definitely a problem. All right, I think I've reached the end of my questions. That was quite a pile. That was great. Um, okay, uh, if anybody has any other last questions they want to ask, feel free to type one in in the chat. Um, while you're doing that, I'll just let you know that in April, we are going to have another um, session. I'm just going to look up the time a minute to make sure I have that right. Um, hang on a second. There we go. Just to confirm, yes, it'll be on April 12th. So on April 12th, we are gonna have a session featuring Susan Carrant Nunn, Beth Plummer, and Victoria Chrisman. Now, Susan Carrant Nunn, you probably know her. Um, she is now a retired professor from the University of Arizona. She was the successor to Heiko Oberman. And she will be talking about the main themes of her work in her years of research and the themes that have sort of shaped her understanding of Reformation and Reformation historiography. And then Beth and Victoria will be speaking about the themes of the volume that they co-edited in Susan Carrant Nunn's honor. So we'll be, we'll be having a number of different themes. A lot of that will be um, tied to the German Reformation because that's the area of work that Susan Carrant Nunn has, has been most famous for. So that'll be April 12th, that's a Monday. And just a heads up, it's gonna be earlier in the day because Beth is in Germany at the moment and the time change is a little difficult for her. So we're going to confirm that it's going to be at 1 p.m. for Eastern Standard Time for those, or Eastern Time, uh, for those in North America on the east, Eastern side of the country. So Monday, April 12th at 1 p.m. And we'll send out reminders to everybody for that. All right. Um, one last question, I think, uh, just to make sure. Uh, yes, uh, Ellen Monsma points out that in some of his sermons, Calvin chided those who came to church on December 25 who didn't normally attend. And that's actually, totally true. There are these sermons from Calvin uh, where he complains that the church seems fuller than usual because it's the Sunday closest to Christmas or that Sunday was Christmas. And he said, that's not appropriate. You should come every Sunday, right? So there's this kind of constant tension there. And then Jim Pakala has a question about organs. Yeah. Um, organs is a, a big area of dispute. Um, among the reformed, Organs were thought of as not appropriate for singing, and Calvin was very clear that singing should be done unaccompanied and in unison in church. You can sing in harmony out of church, but in church, in unison and unaccompanied. And the organ was felt as too performative, too show-offy, you know, not, not appropriate for worship. It sort of drowned out the voices. It became a performance. It's not what we should be doing. So no organs. Um, I've always found it fascinating, given his focus on the Old Testament, you know, scriptures that he didn't want harps and lyres and things, but no, those didn't appear either. Uh, no, you sing, you sing unaccompanied and in unison. So the organs were left to decay in many places. Um, in Geneva, the pipes were melted down and they served to make um, plates and other utensils for the Geneva hospital. 
Um, but organs reappear in the 17th century, late 16th, early 17th century already in the Netherlands because the church buildings and the organs were actually the property of the cities, not of the church. And the cities therefore paid for the organs and the organists. And the organists would play preludes and postludes. And these were not considered strictly part of worship. So it was a compromise, right? The pastors could still say, we sing unaccompanied in the church the way we're supposed to, but the organ still played before and after in terms of preludes and postludes. And they have to play appropriate music. Often they played actually um, arrangements of the Psalms or, 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 or pieces based on Psalm melodies. But the organs do come back into the churches. Um, and the one who's done a lot of work on this for the Netherlands is Randall Engel. And you can find work by him as well. Yeah, there, there's a note from, from Kyle Dieleman to the same event. All right, I am going to stop here. I've covered a lot of ground. It has been wonderful to see everyone. Um, if you have other questions or comments or things you wanna ask, um, by all means, send us an email. You can send an email to the Meter Center uh, or to me directly at kmog at calvin.edu and we will be delighted to, to see that. So uh, I'm gonna go over to the, the, the main view so I can see everybody's faces. It's so nice to see everyone. Thank you so much for being part of this. Have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye.